Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Can I Borrow Your Mind? This one is cool um, because I spoke to my sister who is a left-wing activist in Melbourne. She's been an activist for years. She's um, a member of Socialist Alternative. She writes articles for Red Flag magazine very regularly. I'll read out some of the titles of articles that she's written. Um, uh, the Communist Manifesto Today, The Liberals Are Butchering Universities, Staff and Students Have to Resist. That was recently. Hundreds of Thousands March for Black Lives in Australia. That was like a, sort of like a, uh, just a look at the Black Lives Matter movement, which was, I read that one, that was really good. Civil Rights on Lockdown, Police Ban, Refugee Rights Protest. Lots of great articles. I'll post a link to where you can read more of her articles. She is someone who I've always looked up to. Um, she's extremely passionate, extremely smart, um, very intelligent, very compassionate as well as passionate, um, and like just very dedicated to fighting for everyone to be able to have a better life. Like she, <laughs> she seriously just like gives all her time to. She just like doesn't want the world to be shit and she just puts all her time into trying to change that and I just respect her so much so it was really fun talking to her um yeah we kind of just like sat down with microphones and had a conversation like we would normally have a conversation but with microphones uh yeah and it's it's it, most of it's about politics I hope you enjoy it if you'd like to see me do some stand-up comedy I'll be performing tomorrow night um at easy comedy in Collingwood on Easy Street at the Easy Street Concert Hall. Uh, so that's the 10th of December 2020. That'll be a great gig. Um, and yeah, I think that's all the stuff I wanted to say. Keep listening to this podcast, rate it, subscribe it. Um, uh, yeah, I hope you like it. I'm going to keep doing it every episode, every week. <laughs> Fucking hell, I'm a bit tired. Sorry about this. This is a very lackluster introduction, I think. Um, but uh the new episodes every wednesday every wednesday there's a new episode a great guest each week and i will talk to you at the start of next week's episode i'll see you then and i might be less lackluster fuck that's a tongue twister less lackluster <laughs> than i am today i hope wherever you are you're having a good day I'd like to say that I recorded this podcast on the lands of the Kulin Nation and I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri and the Bunwurrung people and their elders past, present and emerging and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who might be listening to this podcast and I'd like to say that sovereignty was never ceded in this country. Now, without further ado, this is... I always find the phrase further ado funny for some reason anyway without further ado <laughs> this is episode 16 16 already i've been doing this for 16 weeks isn't that crazy time flies when you're in a pandemic um episode 16 of can i borrow your mind with lewis garnham and this week's guest sarah garnham same last name because we're related thank you see you soon Um, 
first things first, why, why, why are you interested in politics in general? And try to go back as far as you can, as mm. in terms of like at like at a young age, did you did you start getting interested in in politics? Did you have a sense of justice from a young age? I'm curious. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I think I'm um, so interested in politics because of how fucked the world is. You know, you just look at the inequality around us, and it's pretty hard to not want to fight for a different type of world. Um, like at the moment, I'm living literally just opposite 65 refugees locked up in the Mantra Hotel for no crime whatsoever on top of seven years that they've spent inside detention. It's this absolute crime and, you know, it slaps you in the face every time you look at the monstrosity just outside my bedroom window. So politics is all around. It's not really an option to not notice it. Um, and for me, that's why um, being a left-wing political activist, fighting for a different type of society is important. When did I start being political? I don't know. It's hard to um, it's hard to pinpoint exact moments, but I do remember that growing up under Howard was a very politicizing experience as a kid. Um, and I remember Howard being elected, actually. We were at a, um, a party and it was obviously like a, you know, um, parents party as a young kid and it was a very labor party affair um, everyone was going for Keating but I was hiding away in the lounge room because I was bored and sleepy and whatever waiting to get to go home and um, there was a woman hiding out in there with me and as it became clear that Howard was going to win the election she became quietly excited and started like <laughs> letting out little whoops and whatever and I knew enough even as I don't know how old I was like seven or something to know that that was really the wrong reaction and that basically <laughs> she was evil incarnate for cheering on the liberals in this election and that so, she was embarrassed and that she was it. embarrassed about it so she was hiding in the kids room um and you know hoping that I wouldn't notice her getting excited so yeah, things like that, that there was like always an enemy um, that was instilled on me in me from a young age. And Howard is such a visceral enemy to have. I think there's lots of people who were politicized by his government, um, in particular, the attacks on refugees, the attacks on workers, the Iraq war, like all of those things for me were really formative moments of, yeah, this is a this is a really unfair, unequal system. Um, these are attacks on some of the most vulnerable. They need to be fought. Um, there are people with lots of power who are consciously making evil, wrong decisions um, mm -hmm. that are about fucking over ordinary people and ruining their lives. I've got two, maybe even three questions to ask after three, that. Three, wow. Um, There's too many. <laughs> um, uh, do you think that if... In those formative years, if there'd been a Labor government in Australia, do you think that you would be less left-wing than you are now? Nah, nah. Yeah. I mean, you know, who knows? Like, it's like, well, you can't yeah, go back and <laughs> unpick every little thing that goes into But, I mean, Labor are just as bad, really. Um, yeah, like, sure, they don't present the same sort of obvious enemy um, mm -hmm like a kind of caricature of evil that John Howard did. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, lots of uh, lots of the worst things that have happened in the history of Australian capitalism have happened under Labor governments. Um, the World Wars, the uh, very first um, implementation of mandatory detention, 
the refugees that I was talking about just before, the reason they're there, the key reason they're there, the where you can trace it all back to is Kevin Rudd saying in 2013, no one who arrives here by boat will ever be able to resettle in Australia. That's why those innocent men have spent seven years in jail, thanks to the Australian Labor Party. How do you feel now about um, like Kevin Rudd being sort of out of <laughs> politics directly and like being sort of, I, I, I reckon I'll know what you'll, sort of what your vibe will be on this but i want to know i want to ask you anyway like how he's sort of like almost this like hero figure because he's the one going after the murdoch press and the monopoly they have on the media how do you feel about that kind of thing yeah i think he's a opportunist bastard (laughs) um a narcissist um chasing headlines was very happy as lots of people have pointed out to be um quiet on the question of Murdoch's media monopoly when it was benefiting him. Um, Yeah, so, you know, everything he says is true and the media in this country is um, in a disgraceful state because of it in terms of the monopoly Murdoch has and everything. But, um, yeah, the idea that Kevin Rudd is the hero of the free press, I don't think so. When was the... I didn't realise that the Murdoch press was ever benefiting him. Like, I thought they were always staunchly just like whatever the Liberal Party says goes. That's true. But, you know, they gave him a free ride at various points. Um, And, I mean, I can't really remember this far back, but I'm pretty sure they backed him against Gillard the second time around. Right. Um, But, yeah, it's – I mean, it's not not always the case that Murdoch has backed um, uh, liberal um, governments. Like, there's a couple of times they've supported Labor. It's less frequent, definitely. Um, but then there's a difference as well between like really going the hack and, you know, just kind of preferring the other guys like the Liberal Party. Yeah, they're team A for Australian capitalism. They'll always be the preferred party for big business um, and, you know, for definitely big media institutions like Murdoch or whatever. But on the other hand, they, um, yeah, the Labor Party get the job done. Uh, what about the Greens? How do you feel about them as a party? Um you know, I find when I ask people about the Greens these days, you always get sort of a long pause or just some sort of signal of non-committal kind of, yeah, yeah. You know, like I vote Greens most of the time because, yeah, I mean, they're to the left of the Labor Party. Um, they have on paper, you know, reasonable position on questions like refugees and uh, even workers' rights and the environment, stuff like that. Um, they oppose the Adani coal mine, unlike Labor and Liberal. Um, but I think the Greens have um, ceased a long time ago really to be a serious protest party and a serious left-wing party. They um, are not anti-capitalist by any stretch of the imagination. They actually have spent most of the last 15 years attempting to build a little place for themselves inside the Australian Parliament um, and to just kind of argue for themselves as the gatekeepers, the, the party that wants to keep the other guys transparent, keep the bastards on us, as the Democrats used to say. And uh, I think that's a pretty cowardly, pathetic political approach. It's not what's needed. What's needed is this kind of constant um, uh, fighting for the underdog, fighting for the oppressed Um, And the Greens just, yeah, they haven't been that for some time. Um, Years ago, they made a play of being an anti-war party and um, uh, in the Bush years, you know, during the Iraq war. But, yeah, it's been years now since they've um, seriously put their resources into building protests, building campaigns. Mm. Um, They'll happily back a lot of left-wing campaigns and that's good. It's good that 
the Greens will lend their support to the environment movement, the refugee rights movement. Um, but it's not that party that's out there building those movements. Right. Um, they see their role very much as just, yeah, working within the parliamentary system and most of the time not even talking about those core issues but talking about questions of transparency and just, you know, making small little criticisms of this or that bill that the major parties are pushing through. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, and then so I, I guess this might sound like really basic or whatever or um, silly, but I'd like to hear it. Um, could you please tell me just like a like sort of almost like a rudimentary explanation of Marxism and and um, yeah, what, what Marxism would look like in society? Yeah, wow. Um. Like just put the Communist Manifesto into like a three-minute answer if you can. All right, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's harder than it sounds. Um. And also, actually, that also, I'm interested in that. Like, is the communist, like, obviously, like, something yeah. that was written so long ago. Yeah. Is that still, like, the, is that, does that still completely ring true? Like, yeah, this is, this, all this stuff is still completely relevant today. Mm. And, or is it, like, one of those things where it's, like, you'd have to adjust it a little bit in modern society mm. to think of it in our context? Yeah. It's weird, actually. Like, if you read the Communist Manifesto, um, it's both in this weird way in that, like, it's quite um, shocking when you read it how many points Marx makes that are just strikingly descriptive of the modern world. So he has all these descriptions, for example, of how global capitalism um become how how capital kind of uh, nestles itself all around the globe and as a mode of production is highly dynamic so it continues to develop new markets in different parts of the world that hadn't previously been capitalist and just basically devour all other systems and modes of production um, and everything becomes subordinate to the logic of competing for profits on the market which is mm-hmm. the core the heart of capitalism So the clarity with which Marx describes this when it was only beginning to unfold in Europe at the time he wrote is quite remarkable. Um, Similarly, the kind of the process of the impoverishment of the working class, the creation of the working class, and then the fact that the working class has this strength to fight back um, and the fact that it has these enemies who proclaim uh, liberal values and democratic values but don't actually stand for a just and equal society because they're not for workers liberating themselves from um, the constant exploitation that is the basis for those profits, that sort of just frenetic frenzy to make profits by the capitalists. The only thing that sustains it is the exploitation of millions of workers across the world. So, um you read some of the passages in the manifesto and they describe this and, it, and it's still what goes on today. Um, and it's quite amazing because these processes were only just beginning to unfold. On the other hand, it's also a historical document in that it's describing the unfolding of these processes. So it's actually describing capitalism in its infancy and um, how it's, it's uh, pushing, pushing to the side um, previous systems of feudal rule and Um, the logic of of previous class societies. Um, And so one of the 
craziest misconceptions of the Communist Manifesto. And it's not just something that you kind of find on some random like blog post, but like even argued in universities and stuff, is that the manifesto is a document proclaiming the virtues of capitalism because it describes the magnificence of capitalism as this dynamic system um, that's creating all of this wealth. Force. Yeah. And yeah. also that's creating the basis right. for the emancipation of the working class because right. it's in, cre- in creating an enormous abundance of resources and wealth um, all around the world that it becomes no longer necessary to have um, inequality and poverty. Um, it just becomes a question of what is the social system that props up all of the resources. And as long as it's capitalism, there always will be that inequality. But Marx recognises that the process of the construction of capitalism creates the working class um, and also all of the resources that make socialism a possibility. So that's why he talks in the manifesto of workers being the grave diggers of capitalism um, because for the first time you have a class that, um, because of its social position, is actually able to emancipate itself and then lay claim to all of the resources and all of the abundance that's been created by this frenetic market system and actually then use that to construct a society based on um, equality. So the argument for that kind of um, capitalism opening up the possibility for that has been misconstrued as this sort of um, this argument by Marx, the most famous yeah, communist yeah, revolutionary of all he time. Supported capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think really shows the banality of some of what goes on inside universities and like just the yeah, pretty um, pretty low quality of intellectual understanding. Um, yeah, in some so areas. So is he saying that the workers have the power to um, sort of end capitalism? Is that because um, there's so many of them? Mm. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, that's one thing, definitely. Um, there's so many workers. Uh, so, you know, it's like 70% of the population. And, you know, there's there's so many more workers than there were at Marx's, in Marx's time, obviously. But even then, like even... Um, 150 years ago, there were uh, millions and millions of workers all across Europe uh, that were actually becoming the key, the key class in society in terms of like, the, it's not just the key numerical force, but also the key social force. So I reckon the, the critical thing about workers is um, the size is just a reflection of the importance of workers. So it's workers who actually make everything that's of value in our society. So you know, every time you turn on a light switch, every time you buy anything at the shop, any time you go to hospital and have to get yourself treated, like every process that goes on in society, um, it's it's the labour of workers being paid wages, generally being exploited by bosses, um, that that is, you know, that we're accessing there. Yeah. Um, and so that's um, important. And one of the things about the way that that labour is organised under capitalism is that it's extremely collaborative and collective. So unlike before capitalism, when you would have little outposts here and there um, of peasants working in maybe a communal way together, but in complete dislocation from people in other, you know, just farms, maybe a couple of kilometres down the road, under capitalism, workers' labour is so intertwined with one another and um, there's basically the whole economy is, you know, connected in this really, really intricate sort of lattice. So 
um, basically nothing we buy today is the product of just one little local group of workers. Totally. There's, you know, there's yeah. resources that have been shipped from around the world to make it. It's been constructed somewhere else, transported by another group of workers, packaged by another group of workers, sold to at a supermarket by another group of workers, all of that kind of stuff. So the working class is very much a collective class, not a, not a class of just individuals um, laboring for their own benefit. And then do you think that that, the way it's all intertwined and it's like, um, yeah, everything is made by all these different workers from around the world, do you think that that um, causes people to be less in tune with the exploitation of workers because it's like such a um, far-reaching problem or something? Do you know what I mean? It's like like if, if I could see a person getting exploited to make my pair of shoes mm. and they lived around the corner from me and I could see that they were being exploited, then I wouldn't buy those shoes. Mm. But because it's like so big and so global, yeah. do you think that's why people are sort of happy to just stay in capitalism? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I don't think people are just happy to stay in capitalism. So. Right. But the first part of what you're saying is right, and that's what um, uh, Marxists have described as commodity fetishism, which is essentially the idea that because there's this you know, enormous collective labour goes on throughout society to make everything of any value happen, yet there's this, um, this alienation from that that we all experience because when we go and access things that have been produced by our collective class – um, they appear to us as just objects independent of that labor. So you yeah. go to the shop, you know, you buy a tube of toothpaste and you don't look at that tube of toothpaste and think, oh, yeah, like that's two hours work of some some other worker or, or that's like equivalent to two, the two hours of work I just did. You know, you just think of it as a inanimate totally. object, a tube of toothpaste. Um, so that's the kind of – that's yeah, that's the process that our labor appears to us on the market um, that can be distorting and um, and – alienating but uh it's just that's just one element of the picture of what goes on under capitalism and actually the other thing is that precisely because the labor of workers is so much more collective than the labor of previous oppressed classes um and so much more powerful as well um because there's these centralized you know economic bases everywhere um workers again and again are given opportunities to feel their power and to get a sense that if they um, stop working, they can use their power um, to actually fight for a better world. So there has you know, never been more social discontent and rebellion than under the 200 years of capitalism. Um, every day of every week in every continent somewhere, workers are going on strike. They're withdrawing their labour with the full knowledge that if they withdraw their labour, they say they're going to stop working the profits stop rolling um, yeah. because it becomes so clear that like, you know, you can have this big impact on your boss that's screwing you over uh, if you if you do that. So um, that's another thing that happens that kind of, I guess, contradicts the stuff about commodity fetishism and alienation. Um, but then there's other things as well that um, mix things up. You know, there's obviously there are political illusions in capitalism as a system that people can get ahead under and stuff like that. Mm. Um, but I, I reckon like that's more and more a thing of the past. Like 
that's really speaks to the high point of neoliberalism in the 1990s that there was this sort of idea that if you just like play your cards right dog eat dog well. yeah and like you'll get the good promotion if you work harder and you know don't join the union because that's just suicide and stuff so you think people don't believe that anymore yeah i think that there's still a um there's still a very um historic lack of confidence in um in class struggle and um you know the the left is in a weak position more or less around the world but on the other hand there's this extraordinary volatility and rebellious kind of um uh revolt going on around the world and i think it's because it's just untenable for people to think this system's going to deliver for them it's not and since the um, global financial crisis in 2008 we have seen more protests than in, in, in any decade since the 1960s and 70s. So wow. um, we've seen the return of mass protests <laughs> and struggle precisely because this system is absolutely, you know, taking people to rock bottom. That's exciting. That, yeah. I, I sort of wanted to ask you about this. So, um, so we're seeing more protests than we have since the 60s. It's, and I don't know if it's just like the social circles that I hang out in. But it does feel like the world is like, I don't know, um, in like a, it doesn't feel solid, like nothing feels completely solid, obviously like Trump and Brexit and stuff like this. And then like COVID and climate change, it just feels like everything is like at this weird fork in the road or whatever. And then with you saying that there's more protests, do you, like a lot of people sort of, uh, feel pessimistic about the world. I do. Do you feel optimistic in the sense that, like, maybe this fork in the road or this precipice or whatever that we're on, maybe it'll be like a time of mass um, protest around the world and then potentially lead to something better? Do you feel like that or do you feel pessimistic in your heart? No, I feel optimistic because of everything you described that things are moving history is happening there's chaos there's disruption there's crisis all of those things are good things because why would we want the system to be on track you know Mm. uh, just like trucking along making people's lives worse but getting away with it um the fact that there is this reckoning with um how the system works by millions of people around the world that there's actually been an exposure of what's going on with the climate crisis and more and more people are angry um, they don't see the climate crisis as just the product of people not having enough keep cups and whatever. They think it's the fossil fuel companies that are to blame and the governments that prop them up for decades, they're to blame. Um, the COVID crisis, I just think it's stripped back so many, you know, if there were any illusions left in Western capitalism, like it's stripped back so many. Like the fact that we're having, you know, like the amount of cases being recorded in places like America and the UK right now, tens of thousands a day, 200,000 already being killed in America. This is some of the worst, um, you know, numerical sort of slaughters in Western countries since the world wars. Um, and yeah. certainly it's like been one of the most disruptive political events. So um, that's very exposing of the system we live under. Um And then, yeah, you have like even before the COVID pandemic, um, there was this, the economy was not getting any better. There were predictions of economic crisis. Um, There's rising imperialist tensions between China and America. So I think those, those kind of crises that are happening at this global level within the system, they're the backdrop to so many social struggles 
um, that are happening not specifically in response to those things. It's not like the big social movements we've seen in Hong Kong, Chile, Poland, Thailand, Iran, like just goes on and on. Those are just in the last like few months that I can remember. I'm sure I'm forgetting some. Um, they're all in response to specific questions of attacks on democratic rights or economic conditions. But um, the fact that there's this backdrop of this system that's so obviously decrepit and grossly unequal and grossly inadequate to sustain human life, I think that gives all of these movements such an edge um, and is is actually radicalizing people. Um, yeah. That's really cool. Um uh okay i think this kind of fits in with what we've been talking about a little bit um uh i don't know what i've mentioned her a few times on this podcast but um naomi klein said this thing once that um sort of like what you were saying the gfc um and like yeah, what what's happening in the world at the moment? She said this a few years ago, but like it's sort of like neoliberalism is dying. Like neoliberalism was so strong in the nineties, and and everyone sort of believed in it, and now no one believes in it anymore because of the GFC. And and yeah, it's like the the body of neoliberalism is sort of flailing around. Mm. It's almost dead. But she said that with that death, mm. there comes a vacuum, and that that vacuum it what could happen from that is sort of like what you're talking about, like great social change and, and protest and, you know, good things ultimately. Or she was sort of saying that um, we need to be wary of that vacuum. Um, the thing that like takes neoliberalism's place could be like the, the sort of right. that the Trumpism, yeah. the far right. Um, where do you stand on that? And yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, for sure. I think that uh, the sort of social disruption and collapse of certain conventions and um, also just the economic uh, misery that's that's going on in um, country after country, like those are conditions that promote the growth of the far right for sure. Um, and that's a real that's a real challenge for the left to meet and the workers' movement to meet. That you know those um, the far right needs to be warded off where it can, and it's not you know, just a done deal that they will kind of rise to power. It's actually a question of struggle and um, and exposing the politics of these organisations and, and beating them back. So, uh, you know, just recently there was this real victory in Greece where they actually sent um, – the courts were forced to send the leaders of Golden Dawn, this openly Nazi party, to jail for several years for murder, um, that several murders that they'd committed in broad daylight um, – and the Greek left actually fought to make that happen. They, for years, have been organising demonstrations. They had to, you know, the case was run by left-wing uh, Marxist lawyers, um, but it was also run on the streets by coordinating these big demonstrations, calling out these um, these fascist murderers for what they were and forcing them to be understood as not just a kind of another reasonable part of the political spectrum but as a force that needs to be beaten back um and so that's you know that's a really inspiring struggle actually and i think one that we you know will want to and need to see replicated around the world then you have the alternative struggle which is the sort of like um argument that well trump's such a threat so you should just vote biden which i think is precisely the wrong way to respond to threats from the far right 
A, because, well, yeah, Trump is an inspiration to the far right, but actually he was elected the proper way precisely because he actually represents something that is pretty integral to the capitalist system, which is just a fucking billionaire with right-wing ideology <laughs> that, um, you know, through all of the undemocratic means of American politics got himself uh, into power. Mm. So, um, at, but yeah, mostly it's a crap strategy to just try and elect Biden because that's not actually the alternative to the far right. Um radical working class and left-wing politics are the alternative to the far right. It's precisely the likes of Biden and neoliberal um, establishment goons like him that have actually created the conditions that breed the far right. Yeah. So that that's on that point. On the point... That's, I, I yeah. love that. That I... Um, can we mention Obama at this point? Yeah, right. Like, because he was the one that came right <laughs> yeah. before Trump. Uh-huh. And um, I think maybe this is changing, actually, this perception yeah. uh, I'm starting to see in just in everyday life. But he is still held up as sort of like a hero. And yeah. you still hear people being like, or during the Trump sure. years being like, I wish we could go back to Obama days, you know. And mm. I think that's complete bullshit. Yeah. And I sort of think that he created the conditions whereby Trump could get elected. Yeah. Um, do you think that Biden... I think that people are, people are more in tune with that now than they were like a few years ago. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I was going to ask you if you think Biden would be will be like more held to account on more things than Obama was because I feel like in 2008, everyone was just so giddy and excited about having an African-American president in America that people just sort of turned off their um, awareness mm-hmm. and, and just let him do whatever he wanted. Whereas now, like if you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, the talk about defunding the police, I feel like around the world, people are more, um, they're more critical of mainstream things that they, that they weren't, in the same way in 2008. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I think, you know, that's a bit fuzzy in a way. It's like an immeasurable thing. In Like, I, I tend to agree with you that, like, there's, like, it's just what we were talking about before, I guess. There's less trust in the system. Um, but, you know, I don't, I, I think that Obama is still, you know, there's a lot of illusions in Obama and um, he's, if anything, kind of building building up this legacy as everything he wasn't as this like um, president that was for peace and justice and not the president that kept Guantanamo Bay open for most of his term, locked up Chelsea Manning for most of his term and went for the kill against Julian Assange, Mm -hmm. continued all of the wars and attacks on the Middle East, um, deported more uh, immigrants from America than Trump did so, you know, like most people don't think or know those things about Obama um, and it's because he can talk slick and can put on a progressive face and all of that. Um, I think you're right, like that, you know, Biden's not that. Like he's not slick. He's an absolute yeah. fool <laughs> and he's, you know, just an embarrassment. But the fact that there was <laughs> – I think there was such a such a right-wing campaign to get Biden elected, a more right-wing campaign than the campaign to get Obama elected actually – that, How so? Well, Obama, like, was um, supposedly going to end the war. You know, he um, spoke out about how he had been against the Iraq war. Um, you know, he hadn't actually been in a position where that mattered, but nevertheless, um, he also spoke about how he was going to regulate the banks and deliver a better healthcare system. Mm-hmm. There were tangible things, and 
I would agree he wasn't particularly held to account on those things. But when where Biden's concerned, there's basically nothing. Like it's just this vague notion that, you know, he'll um, provide a bit of economic stimulus to deal with COVID. He will do some greening. He will, you know, aim for zero emissions by 2050. None of the things that he plans to do to get to supposedly net zero emissions by 2050 actually are going to take place in his four-year term. So that's a convenient <laughs> way. To- <laughs> yeah. So there's, it's quite vague, like, you know, his program of supposedly fixing the wrongs of Trump. But also politically, there was just such a we're all in against Trump phenomenon that um, that was a really right-wing thing. It wasn't just... Um, like, because it, it was basically about, you know, the establishment versus the outsider. And as I said before, I don't particularly think Trump is an outsider, actually. But that's the way the election was framed. I think precisely because the Democrats didn't want to be pushed into a position where they were actually feigning left. Um, they wanted to actually just yeah. campaign on, we are the establishment. We are the ones who we'll, we'll will keep America everything. as it is, yeah. keep it yeah. great as it's always been. Um, and that's why, yeah, it's not just like the legacy of Obama that they called up during their campaign, but the legacy of Bush. Like mm. some of Bush's top yeah. guys spoke at Biden's inauguration. Colin Powell, Secretary of Waterboarding, spoke. He was like it's one crazy. of the honorary speakers um, at Biden's inauguration. So this is a real like, you know, we we want to rehabilitate the American state and all of its yep. most prestigious criminals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. After four years of chaos at the with Trump at the helm, totally. Um, and I think that's a really yeah pretty pretty terrible prospect for yeah yeah people. yeah. At least Obama said that he wanted change. Yeah. <laughs> um, I ask you um some philosophical questions now. Um, like I want to come back to the neoliberalism thing. Can we do that later? Yeah. Okay. All right, I'll just ask you this one philosophical question yeah, no. and then we can come back to the neoliberalism yeah. thing. But um, like someone like Obama, for example, let's use him as an example, right. but you could apply this to lots of career politicians, especially in the Democrats and the Labour Party mm. and same within the UK. <laughs> but um, there's this quote by, I think it's Plato, and it's like, no, no one does what is evil to them when someone is met with a decision to make um, and they can either choose A or B. Every person does what is um, what they think is the right thing at the time. And someone like Obama, for example, I know that you're very critical of, of politicians um, or certain politicians and so am I. But I'm wondering, do you think that someone like Obama goes into politics with the intention of making the world a better place and then is eaten up by the political system, I guess? Or do you think that people like him go in with greedy motives and manage to sort of hide that throughout their thing and then, and then you know, but really greed is, is, is always at the heart of what they're doing? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that... Um I don't care. <laughs> like, I think it's got – it's interesting topic for fascination, you know, after a couple of drinks or something, and it's not, like, irrelevant in all contexts. Like, um, personally, my position is that people that get into the top echelons of American politics are pretty, pretty gross and um, craven careerists who, you know, generally have been, like – 
trying have have had their eyes on that prize, you know, since they were eighteen or sixteen or whatever, and have kind of like done yeah, ticked all the boxes, gotten all the kind of networked all the right people, gone to all the right Ivy Leagues, you know, done all the right internships and stuff to get there, because America's a big fucking system and there's a lot of wannabe politicians. Anyway, but so yeah. I I think um yeah, top American politicians are pretty um. Yeah, you know, their psychology is pretty out of whack with what would be considered the normal realms of just like moral. <laughs> you think they're um, psychos? I think they're pretty sociopathic in, yeah, in yeah, a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. But like, as I said, I think it doesn't matter. The point about Marxism that is really useful as a way of thinking about the world and is truthful too is that in the end, like, what matters is the social position. Um, of of different classes and the interests of those classes and it's just the impact of liberal ideology that makes us think that the world revolves around the individual choices of particular uh. people and whether or not they're psychologically up to the task of being selfless and it's just not the case because the way the reason the ruling class acts the way it does is because it's in the material interests of that class that they represent, regardless of the specific history and motivations of individuals. It's in the interests of the class as a whole to maintain their power and their position. They can only do so by oppressing the vast majority of people. Um, you know, mostly the, the key mechanism of that is through the exploitation of the working class, which is something that goes on in every country. Um, is basically the, the task of every ruling class in every country is to ensure that that steady process of exploiting workers happens so that profits continue to be generated. And alongside that, heaps of other forms of social oppression have to go on. So, you know, you, you construct borders in order to make sure that the right people are kept out and the right people are brought in. You construct prisons in order to punish the poor. You construct a punitive welfare system that punishes the poor and the unemployed. Like all these other forms of social oppression stem from that same class arrangement and conversely the interests of the working class and the fact that Marxists look to them is not based on viewing the working class individuals as morally virtuous yeah um, like it definitely is the case that more of the working class are morally virtuous because yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. they're not the craven opportunities that yeah. climb to the top but that's not the point but it's just the, about a collective group yeah. of people who can do things and have an have an interest in it yeah. so the thing is about you know workers have an interest for example in um you know to win higher wages um the only way that workers can actually do that is to act in a collective way so to sort of act in a non-individualistic way um except for you know rare exceptions of people that might get tapped on the shoulder and offered a promotion mostly that doesn't happen under capitalism and so you know to to win a higher wage to win something that's very obviously in the material interests of an individual worker, for example, that worker has to engage in a collective process with like the whole workplace to try and get a majority of people to come out on strike so that everyone's wages go up together. Yeah. Um, because if they just withdraw their labor, well, you know, that's, that's replaceable. That's not yeah, something totally. that's actually going to hurt the system. So um, yeah, it's the like, you know, it's the thing, again, that we were talking about before about like peasants and workers, like peasants are inherently a sort of more individualized class. Marx talked about them like a sack of potatoes. Like they're all together, but they've all got their little potato jackets. Like they don't, they don't merge. They don't, you know, whereas the workers are like, 
Yeah, it's not like an individual worker can just say, well, I'm going to start working from home now and just do labor on my own terms because yeah. their work is contingent on the work of others and so is their the advancement of their interests. So the working class is an inherently democratic and collectivist class um, and that's why it has a social interest in a society that's built around those principles, um, whereas the ruling class will always be interested, um, you know, give or take the psychology of some of its membership um, in maintaining a system where a tiny minority is in control and that is based on the oppression of the vast majority. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but then like, yeah, okay. So it just doesn't matter really whether they're virtuous or not. Yeah, I mean like, you know, yeah, like where does it matter? Like what's an example of it mattering in a way, you know? Like, like Bernie Sanders, for example. Yeah, I mean, but... Bernie Sanders didn't make it to the ruling class and there's yeah, a reason okay. for that. Um, yeah, right. And so so you think that's the reason? You think you can't... Right, okay. This, I th- this is important. So you can't get to a position of legitimate power within this system if you plan on not exploiting workers as much as is required for the system to keep well, turning. Yeah, I mean, even if he had, like, I'm not... Uh, you know, it's not it's not the case that like there are sometimes our left wing individuals elected to positions of of power or leadership or you know whatever. But um, the the way that the state is organised and the ruling class is organised is not to just be reliant on the decisions of single individuals anyway. Right, right. Um, so as a collective, yeah, like the state machinery is going to go on. There's still going to be yeah. criminal injustice system. There's still going to be cops killing black people. There's still going to be um, you know, disgustingly low welfare payments. There's still going to be a push for wars um, to, you know, maintain the imperial interests of whichever country's ruling classes we're talking about. Like, all these things go on um, and they're not dependent on the the will of just who's elected because that's, yeah. you know, one of the great farcical elements of modern capitalism is the idea that it's this democracy. I mean, really, like... It can't be any kind of legitimate democracy when it rests on all the things we've been talking about, like profound uh-huh. inequality. That's actually worse than at any point in human history. Um, yeah, that's okay. obviously not a democratic sort of yeah, setup. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, so it's not democracy. We can get back to the neoliberalism nah, thing nah, in a bit, I, I promise. Like we've, but we've, you know, transcended <laughs> we've surpassed it. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then... Uh, Okay, with that being said, it's not a democracy um, and what about people that say, yeah, but it's the best we've got, capitalism's the best we've got and yeah, there's inequality but there's always been inequality and, and if you put any society, if we lived under any society as humans, there'll always be inequality and socialism hasn't worked when people have tried to implement it in the past. This is the best we've got we should just try and make capitalism a bit fairer where we can, but we can't change it. What what What's your counter argument to that? I mean, I think that's a really conservative argument. I always think of the... Yeah, it's not my argument. Yeah. <laughs> um, the 19- but a lot of people say that. Yeah, say they that. do. But, you know, I, I think it's like... It's unimaginative for one thing. Um, there's a 68 slogan from France that's like, those who cannot imagine a better future have no imagination because 
the idea that you there's nothing better than this is I think preposterous really mm. um and there's so much dynamism in the system things change all the time anyway that the idea that you know like um it just seems to me so profoundly conservative to think that like we're like um you know like there can be all of these vast technological changes and social changes and um whatever but there's something inherent and unmovable about like I don't know the stock exchange existing <laughs> and like you know Wall Street bankers being all powerful. But what about like greed? So what about the what about the argument that whether you change the system or not, like not talking about the stock exchange or whatever, yeah. but greed will always be in us and people will always get greedy and and socialism will never last because of that. Well, I think um, it flies in the face of the way people fight today and the pe- people fight. Um, you know, pretty heroic and collectivist way all the time. Like we're talking about like all the profound social struggles that are going on. Like it's pretty incredible really, you know, the, the people in Hong Kong willing to risk their lives um, to fight for democracy, knowing that in some ways like it's a really hard fight to win. They, they could well lose, but there's, they're flying the flag, they're fighting because it, the alternative is worse, accepting this fate of just having yeah. no democratic say over your government, your, your society is worse than fighting probably an impossible fight. Um, so I think people display this incredible courage in the service of justice and democracy and, and a better world all of the time um, to look to you know the moments of backwardsness and greed that also exist in our society also amongst ordinary people as the kind of litmus test or measure of what people's innate form is I think is is really backwards and it's it's a sort of willful choice because for every example you can raise like that there are a million examples to the contrary of people saying no you know what I I won't stand for this Mm. um so like what what about the 60,000 protests for Black Lives Matter this year the fact Mm. that it electrified uh, in Melbourne, that was, but like millions around the world, the biggest social movement in America's history, 26 million in the middle of a pandemic. And people at all those protests were aware of that, didn't want to take unnecessary risks, but were like, you know what, this is something I got to fight for. This is something I won't be silent on. Yeah. Um, and felt inspired to be part of that struggle. So, yeah. And I think as well, like, if you look at the sweep of human history, some of those kind of it's always been like this they just actually don't hold up like there's never been inequality like this um there has been you know inequality for thousands of years prior to capitalism but um it was underpinned by a um like a limited amount of resources as well um and the kind of inequality that we see these days and that has in particular sort of um emerged in the last couple of decades it's just so profound precisely because there's such an obscene amount of wealth and resources in the system, yet millions of people in the richest countries, let alone the poorest countries, are literally starving. Like, yeah. it's the most disgraceful um, situation that human society's ever been in, I think, because of how starkly counterposed it is to what is available. Um, and I think that the idea that that's some sort of thing that we've all willingly signed up for or signed some sort of social contract to be in or have it reflects our innate nature ends up just being a very anti-human argument yeah um and you know if you actually think that's that's the truest reflection of what human society is then what's the point in any of it like it's (laughs) it's just um yeah whereas i don't i think that like the um 
there's a class struggle and the responsibility of, of left-wing people who do find this world intolerable is to fight out our side of it and try and win so that one day we can actually build um, a world where these these systems don't um, don't exist anymore, where, the, where greed is not the prevailing logic. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And do you see that I, that's so beautifully put? I completely agree. And do you see that? Um, do you, do you have hope for that world? I know that's a bit of a banal shit question or whatever, but like, I don't know. Do, like, do you, do like you feel hopeful? Get a fridge magnet response kind of question. <laughs> yeah. Like, all you can do is hope. Yeah. Reach for the stars. <laughs> no, but all right, but let's put some tangible shit into it. Like, we've, we've got a clock, mm. we've got. You know, however many years before the world is too hot to live on. Um, like you said, there's massive protests happening all around the world, but there's also like, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if this is true, but it, it feels like there's more militarized sort of police forces and it almost feels like the states are like getting ready. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's like there's, it's things feel a bit more authoritarian or something. Mm. Um and then also, like in a, somewhere like Australia, I just feel like there's a lot of. Um, you might di- completely disagree with this. I think you might actually, but I feel like there's a lot of apathy, just generally, and um, and I just don't see big protests or huge strikes happening in Australia. Mm. So, with all that being said, mm. not a fridge magnet response. Yeah. Do you feel hopeful about not even necessarily like a global revolution, but do you feel hopeful about this path that we're on of inequality just getting worse and worse and worse and worse and the climate getting more and more fucked? Do you see that halting and then changing direction, say, in mine and your lifetime? Or um, I know it's impossible to predict, mm. but do, but is that, is that realistic at all? Mm. Or is this just going to keep going on? I mean, I think hope is – I think it's important, um, but it's not some, like, blind faith that's just a, yeah, religious kind of thing of, like, despite all the evidence, like, you've just got to just got to pray that you wake up and it's all a bad dream or something like, you know, any of that kind of crap. It's actually that if – I think um, a logical um, examination of the world means that it would be totally folly to extinguish hope or to think that, that we can't, you know, see serious changes in our lifetime. Um, there are periods of lull and upsurge all throughout the history of capitalism. Um, but as I said earlier, it's like a very explosive system with a very powerful underclass that has every interest in overthrowing the current regime. Um, so before some of the big moments of global upturn there was you know significant lulls like um you know in the decades leading up to world war one and the revolutions that that spiked it was not obvious that there was going to be um those revolutions in the 1950s an era known for its conservatism and witch hunts against the left and um reversion into just the nuclear family and like traditional kind of um ways of living and thinking that was there was undercurrents developing in that period that sparked you know the uh, the fire last time the biggest revolts we'd seen um, since the World War One revolts of the sixties and seventies. So um, there's always there's just there's contradictions, right? And I think at the moment 
yeah, like I think you're right to say there's apathy in Australia. I think there is. I think that um, there's been uh, less, you know, like there hasn't been these big enormous struggles um, for some time um, that are kind of big, acute, bitter class struggles that really take people with them and force people to pick a side on, on core class questions. But on the other hand, like I think there's a more politicised kind of youth um layers of young people than there has been for decades arguably like um the fact that there's such a big attendance at black lives matter demos but also the environment um protests mm. that um unfortunately we haven't you know do a lot of during covid but like we're huge in australia um yeah. you know the marriage equality uh campaign before that like we've seen um enormous demonstrations in just the last few years in australia that reflect that people do um care mm. um but in t- terms of that kind of flowing into like bitter and ongoing and serious struggle that actually is set to win things. Um, there's a bit of work to go in terms of like the left has to be built up a bit and so on. But one of the things is Australia is an island, but it's not isolated. And the fact there's those processes are well underway in, in some parts of the world. Right. Like Chile, and I think I mentioned it before, as one of the places that's seen global revolts. It hasn't just been in the last little stretch that there's been the big revolts and the fight for the constitution three years before that there was a serious wave of student struggles and workers strikes then another four three years before that there was another one so the last 10 to 12 years there's been this like incubating kind of process of political development alongside these big explosions of protest and you need both you know you need the protests and the right. street movements, but also the politics of like right. um, of looking to the working class of of having some strategy to actually win things. So yeah, like we we're dealing with some some weak conditions, but some very strong ones, I think. And it's just like um, it's a challenge for people on the left to try and make the most of of the conditions we're in at the moment. Um, and I think for sure the stuff about how no one's writing any love letters to capitalism these days is yeah. such an important basis to um you know thing to base our hope on really as like that's there's not going to be some kind of collective like sleepwalking into the next phase of capitalist development because people are actually really angry at the way the system is the question is whether we can turn that anger into something that's um effective and and starts to build up our forces in a really serious way that actually threatens the global capitalist class you know when you talk about um like the workers being this sort of this one thing, this one big organism with so much power and like, you know, that they could sort of overthrow capitalism. And then there's the ruling class who the workers work for. What about like, where do you feel you feel like a, not like a blue collar worker, like a white collar worker, like, um, like say like lawyers and like, dentists and doctors and shit like that who make a lot of money and uh, like assumedly are comfortable in this system when the revolts start happening or whatever are they part of the are they part of the workers or are they part of the ruling class do you know what i mean yeah for sure i mean all the ones you mentioned are generally like middle class professionals so it's not a good example um it's, you know, like those are kind of like jobs that are like, you know, in a kid's book, it's like things you can be when you're older, doctor, dentist, policeman, like whatever. But they're actually quite small in number. Like the majority right. of white collar workers are not um, self-employed CEOs, lawyers sure. or 
teachers or, or, or um, doctors, they're teachers, they're nurses, they're administration oh, workers. Right, right, right. And yeah, the working class has never been made up of just blue collar labourers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's always been made up of uh, white collar workers who, you know, sometimes don't even work directly in the um, in in making um, profitable commodities. They, you know, moving around spreadsheets or like filing things for bosses or whatever it might be um or perform or you know working in the service industries and things like education and health and stuff um that are about the general upkeep of the working class and society but the workers in all of those industries have um you know have social power same as blue collar workers and different groups of workers are going to have different social power in general like even within blue collar workers there's a huge variation if you're like um a worker that lays rare mosaic tiles for like rich people's patios then you're not going to have a lot of industrial clout but if you work in like an elect- like a power station and can turn off and on the city's electricity mm-hmm. you've a lot more um same with white collar workers um some administrative workers don't have a lot of clout workers like teachers have a huge amount um and we've seen that over and over and over again in recent years that teachers have become one of the most unionized sections of the workforce um, and are more and more willing to strike and see themselves as as workers so that kind of idea of like the teacher is this professional that has no collective interest is long past um that's cool yeah so yeah so the working class i think i quoted the kind of 70 percent. i think that's no that's really rough who who knows what it is exactly but you know that if you if you think of the working class as actually the vast bulk of the population um of course it includes all these white collar workers the people it doesn't include strictly are like yeah people that don't work for a wage that don't work under a boss that can totally control their own labor and maybe even employ people below them right and that's the middle class you know that's people that don't own significant amounts of capital but neither are they oppressed and collectivized in the way that workers are and in terms of their social allegiance it can shift and change um they're the middle class of the social base of fascism no denying that um <laughs> they were in the 30s and they are now but what do you mean can you elaborate on that well every significant fascist movement has always had its caters its base in in the middle class really um yeah like petty shopkeepers and stuff like that um and um, yeah, so, and then, but then there's also, you know, there's a kind of, there's liberalism, strains of liberalism within the middle class and um, there's uh, also sections of the middle class that can be dragged in behind the working class because, like, they're tied to it through family or community connections and stuff like that. So, there are, um, there are social class that doesn't have a, um, like, a... Uh, strategy to win liberation for themselves so they have to kind of fix themselves to one of the other two major classes whether they yeah. be capitalists or the workers um and that changes depending on you know what kind of what questions are being debated where things yeah. are at with the class struggle interesting yeah um i think that, that was amazing are you finished all right. I'm finished. <laughs> um, that was fun. No, yeah. I'm just wondering, do you have anything else to oh, yeah. add? Like any final thoughts? Oh, well, why don't really I say good. the neoliberalism yeah, thing? Yeah, yeah, can you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Um, well, what I was going to say about that is it's funny. It's just something I've been thinking about. It's like, like it's, it's one of those like, yeah, 
couple of drinks combos as well about like, you know, is neoliberalism dead? Was it ever around in the first place, etc. But I think the thing is that more and more like discussions of neoliberalism, they're not that helpful because um, we actually just need to talk about capitalism and neoliberalism really isn't some special monster. It's actually just a description of a phase of development in capitalism where the ruling class went for gold. Like they really let it rip. They really um, just, you know, they they did all the things that are kind of famous in neoliberalism in terms of like privatising everything that moves, setting up international trade, um, free trade arrangements everywhere, um, blowing out the power of like multinational corporations to just maraud around the world without any government control. But also absolutely just smashed the working class, attacked unions, really like did a number on working class resistance in country after country. And that was actually the core um, aspect, I would argue, of the implementation of the neoliberal period. But really what that all is that I just described is capitalism. And a lot of the time when people say, you know, we have to overcome neoliberalism, they are envisaging this romantic view of capitalism before yeah. neoliberalism um, yeah. in the period where, yeah, we had a slightly better welfare system, very slightly, <laughs> or, yeah. you know, there was slightly um, higher wages compared to the wealth in the system and, and stuff like that. But I think the idea that what we should be looking to is um, post-World War II kind of um, welfare capitalism um, is, a, is completely wrong. Because right. that as well was just a phase in the system. And um, we can do a lot better than just opposing neoliberalism. We can actually, and we should, um, fight to get rid of the whole logic of, of this capitalist system, which is based on the profits of the rich, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, and everyone else suffers. And whether that happens at a slower or a faster rate um, in more or less gruesome fashion that That's shouldn't the be the debate. Goal, the debate no should be what. let's get rid of this fucking system. Okay. Uh, even, but, you know, what if, but maybe that's too idealistic and, you know, you're going to spend, we're going to spend a hundred years trying to fight for this radical sort of socialism when we could have just gotten social democracy or whatever, democratic socialism and, you know, had better welfare and a lot of people's lives would have been tangibly better instead of fighting for something that's more idealistic and perhaps unrealistic. Mm. But I don't, I think that it's ahistorical to think like that because, yeah, there's no such thing as a nice capitalism. There's just different historical periods that demand different things. And the historical period we're in now is not one where, like, you know, the working class is, is, um, should be <laughs> looking to all of these massive improvements in its life. The reason that there were, you know, some very, very modest reforms in some parts of the world um, after World War II was a specific historical conjuncture, conjuncture where various industries were being expanded, white-collar industries. They wanted a more technically proficient working class in much of the West. There had been, um, you know, substantial labour struggles in a bunch of countries that, that won things. Um, so you had all that coming together, economic boomment, full employment, um, yeah, the need to kind of like make the working class more, um, basically there was a value in like, the working class becoming more educated and, and having better access to health and all that. Like we're not in that historical period now. Yeah. And those reforms didn't 
exists because the capitalists of that age were nicer and we just need to replace the ones we've got now with more social democratic ones or whatever. Like the same social democratic parties that existed then exist now and they've all been complicit in neoliberalism. Totally. Um, and they will continue to be complicit in whatever heinous crimes the capitalist class want to pursue. So, yeah, I think it's a total dead-end strategy to just say, you know, we should have a slightly better healthcare system. And I think in the face of the kind of disasters that we're seeing with the ecological crisis, the pandemic, all of that, it's it's like laughable as well. Like it's yeah. like suggesting you put a Band-Aid on a exactly. weeping gash. It's just <laughs> ridiculous. Um, and it flies against, goes against what, you know, ordinary people are doing everywhere and actually just rising up and fighting as well. Like, um, Right, it's almost a bit disrespectful to that. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's... It's on another page. It's not, yeah, it's not where we're at. And I think especially in the kind of um, like the wake of the Bernie Sanders and the Jeremy Corbyn moments, yeah, um, that all came to nothing. And I think like yeah. one of the reasons was people's horizons was way too low, like was just like, let's get these guys elected because they have a slightly mm. better program for capitalism, which yeah. I think just doesn't cut it. Um, yeah. So, did you you never had a point during those campaigns where you were like, "This could be really great," like this is really exciting, like with Corbyn and Sanders. I think the thing that was really exciting was that um, the 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 popularity, the fact that there was such social, yeah. su- like such amount of support um, across society for for these politicians because um, they actually were like hounded as like left wing, demented left wing communists by the press, and you know yet. <laughs> millions of young people were like that's what we want so yeah. I think that's exciting but I think it was really tragically frittered away as well because um, as opposed to you know the enormous numbers of people who support both both Sanders and Corbyn being mobilized in strikes in protests in struggle um, they were basically um, all hopes were just behind these these leaders being elected um, and I mean, it's a whole other thing to get into. There's, there's big differences in each case, right? But, yeah, ultimately it was futile. Ultimately yeah. um, they didn't succeed in their own terms and there's not much of a legacy left. Um, yeah, there aren't these new parties or organisations that have surged forwards totally. because so much of it was just pinned to um, hopes in these parties delivering. Yeah, and the, yeah, I feel like that. I feel like that's a good place to end because it's kind of yeah. like a call to action. Yeah, I thought like we would get the end into of the this Communist Manifesto area. too. Yeah, yeah, is it? Mm. <laughs> right. Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Is that the last lines? Mm. Workers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Wow, that's really beautiful. Mm.